0: Craig Hoffman. A little
1: bit different on the Hoffman show today. Thanks as always for listening here on hoffmanshow.com. Uh we're going to go a little bit longer today than normal, an extra segment if you will. Normally or so far I guess we should say it's only been about 5 6 episodes uh, since we I revamped the style of everything but It's been two guests and then an opening segment and the closing segment uh, I do on my own. Uh, Today, i got three guests and uh, we're going to do kind of a, a, a standalone segment in the middle as well. And the topics on today's show, a couple of them anyway, are a little bit heavier than the lighter sports we've luckily been able to stick to, but the news dictates what I talk about. And... The Baylor story is in the news right now, and Matt Mosley, my old colleague and friend from down in Dallas and a proud Baylor alum, is going to join me to talk about that, and then I'm going to talk about it on my own as well. Um, and then the Redskins name issue has come up thanks to a new Washington Post poll. I'll do that at the end of the show. We will start uh, lighter, more sports-centric, though, uh, and talk about the the NBA playoffs, and Mark Kestcher from ESPN Radio is going to join me in you know 10 minutes or so to talk about the Eastern Conference Series that he's calling. Also on today's show, Amanda Borges from 1010XL down in Jacksonville as they've had another first-round pick go down due to injury. Jalen Ramsey has a knee injury. So we'll figure out what's going on down there with her coming up in the show as well. But as I said, going to be a little bit different uh, format today. It's really not different. It's just more uh, than what we have done, because there's enough to talk about that we can do more. Listen to as much as you want, hopefully you get through it all. Uh, of course, all feedback, always welcome, at Craig Hoffman on Twitter, C-R-A-I-G-H-O-F-F-M-A-N, or the Contact Me page here on HoffmanShow.com. So with all that introduction set up out of the way, let's talk about two things in the NBA playoffs. One, the Eastern Conference that's going on right now, and then something from the Western Conference playoffs that I haven't had a chance to get to yet. And it's really just a bigger thought on how Golden State operates that I love. So that's coming up in you know five, six minutes. But first, the Eastern Conference Finals, the only question left is, is it going to be a sweep? I would, at this point, predict a sweep. I do think Toronto will play better in Toronto, and they have a chance to jump out. They've done that a little bit. Uh, in Game 1, they jump out to a quick 7 nothing lead, and then Cleveland comes back and houses them last night. You know Things are close for 21 minutes. And then the, the first half closes on a massive run for Cleveland. And in the middle of that run, Kyle Lowry leaves the floor to decompress. And that's just weird. And I'll ask Kesty about this in a few minutes, but I can't think of that ever happening. And it probably has happened, but we don't know about it. Maybe a guy leaves and they say, oh, he had, just had to go to the bathroom Or, you know, he tweaked an ankle and went back in the tunnel to try to loosen it up. Or they went back and re-taped it. You make something up. You don't let it out that a guy's back decompressing. But since we know, Lowry's got to, it's not even that he has to be mentally tougher. Like, he's just got to get out of his own head. Like, quit thinking so much. This is multiple years in a row where Kyle Lowry's been straight trash in the playoffs, and he would be the first to admit that, and we saw earlier in the playoffs when he had had a horrible game shooting, he spent some extra time late night back in the arena alone, Like this is a guy who's willing to put in the work, but his mentality, his mental makeup, you think Pitbull, just gets in there and he's so tough, and that's Kyle Lowry, that's what's made him in the past couple of years, into a a no-doubt all-star caliber player. This is a guy who's so mentally tough and so physically tough, and he's not scared ever. And I don't know if scared's the word that I would use to describe his play right now, but man, he's timid. Tim Legler did a great job last night on SportsCenter, breaking it down from a basketball standpoint. He comes off a pick-and-roll, and he's not even trying to turn the corner. It's just come off, take a couple dribbles, widen out, and then reverse the ball, and then if it comes back to him, he'll shoot a three. That's not what Kyle Lowry's game is. And Lowry, I thought he was going to get right in this series. He torched Cleveland in the regular season. He was incredible. I think it was their last game they played, I want to say it was late February, early March. But I remember watching it and Lowry just went nuts and he just refused to let the Raptors lose that night in Toronto. And it was awesome. And you're going, man, this guy. This is going to be fun when they meet in the playoffs. Because at that point, they were clearly the two best teams. And it seemed like, okay, Cleveland's kind of scuttlebutting internally. We don't know what's going on. Uh, is Ty Lue making that much of a difference uh LeBron subtweeting everyone and the Raptors are just this mentally locked in tough team and now it's not that they're they're fighting amongst each other and look let's let's not go any further without saying that Jonas Valančiūnas's injury their starting center's injury is a massive 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 factor in this series he's a really 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 good player And a really important part of their rotation. But it has nothing to do with Kyle Lowry's effectiveness. Kyle Lowry's approach has to do with Kyle Lowry's effectiveness. Kyrie Irving is somewhere between an average on his best days. And a hot flaming garbage defender on his worst. And Lowry's not doing anything. This is a series where I wondered if Kyle Lowry could almost play Kyrie Irving off the floor in favor of Matthew Dellavedova cuz Delhi's that much better of a defensive player and now that he's become a pretty solid catch and shoot knockdown three point shooter they figured that that what they lose creatively on offense the drop off offensively from Kyrie Irving to Matthew Dellavedova would be worth it with what they'd gain defensively i thought that was a possibility instead Kyle Lowry hasn't done anything to Kyrie Irving and Kyrie Irving has torched Kyle Lowry on the other end of the floor. I don't know what's going on with Lowry. I don't know whether it's because of the sustained playoff success or the sustained playoff lack of success that he's so far in his own head. But he's just got to go play. And his teammates need to just be building him up and his coaching staff needs to build him up. And they need to figure out ways to get him going you know, get some backdoor cuts or whatever it may be to try to get him some layups. And his confidence has got to come back. And it's got to come back now. Game three, tomorrow, Saturday night. And that building should be on fire, but also it's going to be antsy. If they go down early, man, it's going to be quiet in there. And that series is going to be a sweep, just like that. Cleveland is in lockdown mode right now. And it is crazy impressive how they're playing. And, man, Golden State, if they win, I mean, Oklahoma City, look, Golden State lost nine times all season. 82 games, they lost nine times. And you got to beat them four and seven. And so either it's going to be Cleveland trying to do that, or a team that did do that in Oklahoma City will be their opponent in the NBA Finals. So whoever they're facing out of the West is miles better than anything they face in the Eastern Conference playoffs. But... I think despite the caliber of competition, we can safely say that Cleveland's playing the best basketball of anyone right now. Will it be enough? I think I'd still pick Golden State. And even if Oklahoma City can figure out how to beat Golden State, I think I'd pick Cleveland against Oklahoma City. But I won't feel good about it. Cavs are on fire right now. It's crazy impressive what they're doing. Playing as a team, everything just seems to be in perfect harmony. Um... Chemistry-wise, I wrote about that the other day. Check out that blog, hoffmanshow.com, on the blog page. Um, It matters, and right now they're in sync in every way you can possibly be in sync. Um, All right, the the Golden State point I want to make real quick, and then we'll get to Mark Kestescher here on the Hoffman Show. Um, Part of what makes Golden State great and this, you know, kind of piggybacks what if we just talked about with mental toughness, is their mental toughness. And when you ask how to coach mental toughness, I mean, a lot of it's you just tell your team, you gotta be tough, you gotta be tough. And, and eventually they learn to just ignore some stuff. But Golden State's pace actually helps them be mentally tough. Let me explain. When they give up something and they get frustrated, they don't dwell on it. That's what kills you when you let stuff eat at you. And then one mistake becomes two and two becomes three and it snowballs. Because Golden State plays so fast, if they give up a layup and they blow an assignment, they get that ball back in balance as fast as they can and sprint up court and they're on to the next possession. And sometimes before you, you know, half your team even crosses half court, Klay Thompson spotting up for three drains it and all of a sudden uh, they, they've just gone plus one on those two possessions. They gave up a layup but got a three. There, over, done with. And there was a great example of this in Game 1, and I was going to talk about it then, and then they wound up losing, so probably lost a little effectiveness. <laughs> um, and you had to talk about what Oklahoma City did. It was more pertinent, and I knew this would this was kind of a, a topic I could get to later, and, and you know we can do it here. But great example in Game 1, Draymond Green's really mad, uh, slams the ball down after they blow a defensive assignment, takes the ball out, and... Um, And then I think he was the one dribbling it up court. And Steve Kerr's looking at him, giving him him the the hurry up sign. Like, what are you doing, Pouton? Get going. Speed it up. Because they want to play at such a fast tempo, there's no time to dwell on mistakes. And that helps them not dwell on mistakes, and not help mistakes snowball into massive problems. It's part of the reason they didn't lose games that so many teams that are great do. To win 73, you've got to win, or you're just going to have to win games that you just lose in the NBA. Sometimes it happens. Even if you're a great team, you just have a night. Golden State doesn't have nights like that in part because of how they play. Their style is conducive to not having snowballed mistakes and I don't know whether that's part of the equation for Steve Kerr whether that's on purpose or just uh an amazingly uh constructive byproduct but it's reality it happens it helps and the results obviously so far have been magical game three of that series is on Sunday
0: Craig Hoffman
1: Marquez is sure will be our first international interview on The Hoffman Show. He's joining us from Toronto, Canada. Fine, fine ESPN Radio play-by-play man calling the Eastern Conference Finals with John Barry. You can hear him on your local ESPN radio station. Uh, That would be tomorrow night, Saturday, or depending on when you're listening to this, maybe tonight. Or maybe you missed the game because you're listening on Sunday. I don't know. It's a podcast. Saturday, Monday, Eastern Conference Finals game 3 and 4. And Kesty joins me from Toronto. And Mark, uh, how competitive do you think this Game Three is going to be early on Saturday evening? Do, do you think Toronto comes out and is able to be competitive, feed off the crowd, or did Cleveland just break their soul with stomping them again in Game Two?
2: Craig, when I was looking at this series, I you know it it was overwhelmingly caval- Cavaliers just based on. Uh, the way they performed the first two series. And the Raptors have played 14 games, won a couple of game sevens. And I think we all agreed, our little ESPN radio unit, John Barry, my producer, and some of our other ESPN friends were like, look, if they're if Toronto's going to get a game, game one might be it because they've played every other day. They're still in a rhythm. Cleveland took eight days off, rested. Perhaps they'll be a little rusty. Obviously that didn't happen. And then the other opportunity would be game three, for all the reasons you just mentioned. Um, there, It's becoming a basketball-loving nation. i will never top hockey, but um, we're getting a lot of really good basketball players out of Canada, many of them from right here in the Toronto area. Uh, the place is going to be packed. First conference final game ever hosted in Toronto at the Air Canada Center. So if if there's ever going to be a game they're going to get, I think this would be the one. But to your point, They're going to have to put four quarters together because I would almost say put Toronto up five with nine minutes to go in the fourth quarter. Do you still feel comfortable? I don't know if I do. And it's all going to depend on uh, Kyle Lowry, how he plays.
1: Right. And so let's just get into the two huge stories around Kyle Lowry. First of all, his decompression. He leaves the floor last night. Um, I'm assuming you guys saw it on, uh, you know, he leaves the floor and are, are you thinking he's hurt? What's going through your guy's mind, and what information are you getting? And then, you know, obviously after the game, we find out it's he was so he could mentally and physically decompress. Um, and once you hear that, what are you thinking?
2: Well, we have a monitor at our setup, and we're courtside on the opposite end by the Cavaliers bench. Uh, we did not get a heads up that he had gone back for any particular reason. Um, so really it wasn't until after the end of halftime that there was some kind of indication, but there was no injury, so, um, you know, we I don't think we got a real good feel for it on our end, that there was anything out of the ordinary, and, and like you, it, for us as well, it was a matter of, wow, he he decided he needed a little time to blow off some steam. Uh, you know, I hadn't heard that. He says he's done it on a lot of occasions, but hasn't been in the spotlight, so it's never been talked about. It's a little bit odd, um, Look, there's no. Uh, we, we know the, the deal with him over the last few years in the postseason it's not been pretty. It looked like he turned the corner the last few games of the Miami series in round two, um, but he, for whatever reason, just does not seem locked in. I can't figure out why. Shot's not there. Um, turnover prone. And obviously uh, what went on at the end of the second quarter just leave the bench and head back uh, to the locker room. Something's going on there. I don't know what it is. Uh, but he, he's got to figure out a way to focus and get ready for game three because his team needs him or this is going to be over real quick.
1: Is there anything you've ever seen in Kyle Lowry's makeup, specifically in the last couple of years to become a star player, that would ever suggest that he could be broken like this?
2: No, because you know what the funny thing is? I mean, his look, he may not be the most talented guard in the NBA, but the one thing that he's not going to let you do is outwork him. You know, he's a scrapper, scrappy kind of guy. That's kind of how he made himself was to you know you're always going to attack a problem he will and nothing's too big for him that's why this seems so odd now look it was kind of weird at the start of the last series to see him out there shooting jumpers until one in the morning after they lost to miami uh here in round two and then at that point you figured it was something mental like you thought okay great they got over the hurdle they beat indiana in game seven now game one they go backwards uh, he had a really rough first four games of that series, and then started to turn it on. so you figured he was right where he needed to be, and now he's taking a left turn again, two straight, four for fourteens. It's got to be frustrating. i mean for for those of us who you know never got to that level of athletics, whether you know it's high school sports or college sports or maybe you know uh, now in my olden days, playing golf, anything competitive when all of a sudden it doesn't work, it's very frustrating. You can't figure out why. Uh, and unfortunately, he's got to do it in front of cameras and millions of fans. But, um, you know, you never know when you're going to get back to this spot. So uh, he's he's got to figure it out quick uh, because I think most people feel this is a sweep waiting to happen. And uh, I think the only thing that derails that is if they can get a win in Game 3.
1: If, you know, needing a couple of minutes to decompress in the middle of the Eastern Conference Finals wasn't weird enough... He's also apparently texted Taron Liu, yeah. which is something he's done in the past. But like he's playing Taran Liu's team, the Cleveland Cavaliers head coach, saying, "I wish we could watch film." I mean, I would ima- I can just imagine when John Barry found out that story, the, the what happened to his voice and how much he would freak out about that. And any former NBA player basically telling the, the opposing coach, "I'm broken." Like, oh, what do you make of that?
2: Yeah, that is odd, and, and maybe even odder that. Teron Liu, I guess it was Teron Liu who mentioned it, right? That's how the whole story came out. So I I don't know if Ty feels weird about that as well because kind of through, you know, I don't want to say his guy because he's on the opposing team, but clearly a guy who reached out to him, you know, to be a mentor when he was, you know, younger, Uh, you know, a decade ago just coming into the league, Lowry apparently reached out to Ty Liu and they have that relationship Um but that, that, the whole thing is weird. The whole setup and story, it's just, yeah, this is not the time or place. I mean, think about LeBron and Dwayne Wade and the whole episode that went down in Miami. And then that was a, a little mini turning point in the season was when Ty Lou basically told LeBron, this is not a good look. You know, you can't be doing this. you got to focus on what you got to do with your team. And so, you know, to have it come back the other way with Lou kind of, you know, directly indirectly involved just had to kind of shut it down and say yeah this is this not be a good thing if uh, if we were together on the off day so yeah that that whole the whole side story with Kyle Lowry is very awkward
1: as for the Cleveland Cavaliers because we'll be done with the Toronto Raptors possibly by Monday if not by whenever game five is soon after um, when you look at the way the Cavs are playing right now, and, and you've called Cavs games over the past couple of years since LeBron came back, how much different is it right now for this Cavaliers team with Ty Lue in terms of the chemistry and the vibe around them?
2: I mean, winning obviously uh, changes everything, and they've been a winning outfit before, but uh, this this is the best ten game stretch I've seen in the two years. I mean, even the run up for the finals last year obviously was mired with injury and you know they blitzed through atlanta you know without kevin love and then even had a 2-1 lead after losing kyrie irving in game one of the finals um but even at any point this season you know it took kyrie a little while to get back from the knee injury when he came back in january kevin love has kind of found you know his rhythm after David Blatt was removed and Lou came in and used uh, love in different ways. But even up to the end of the regular season, Craig, I wasn't sold on these guys. I mean, sure, they were the best in the East, and I expected them to get to the finals. But I didn't expect, uh, you know, that they would give whoever came out of the West, most likely Golden State, a real run for their money. But that's changed. I mean, I still don't know level of competition, Detroit. And then, uh, you know, knocking off, um, uh, I just lost my – train of thought, Atlanta in the second round, yeah. and then now Toronto, um, you know, clearly none of those teams are on the level of Oklahoma City or Golden State, so I guess, you know, in theory, we could say we're not sure if they're tested, but I think regardless of who they're playing, there's just a trust out there. Um, you know, even J.R. Smith has given up shots in this series to defend,
1: I mean, who would ever,
2: who would ever think of that?
1: J.R. Smith doesn't give up shots. Yes,
2: I mean it's, it's I think they've all bought in. They like they have good rotations now. They figured something out. You know, they got a tight nine man rotation, and this is the best they've played. Now they could get smacked in the mouth in Game One of the Finals and have to regroup. But um, I mean, I, I I really like this team right now. I think I think we could have good Finals on our hands.
1: Say about to put you on the very unsponsored, not very hot, but we'll call it a hot seat anyway. Will you pick the Cleveland Cavaliers against either Oklahoma City or Golden State? Are you? I mean, you you've been to the finals every year over the past couple of years, um, doing doing pre and post game for ESPN Radio and, and halftime and all of that. So you're in the building, getting to see literal championship caliber that basketball. You know what it looks like. Would are the Cavs playing that right now? And is that good enough to beat Golden State uh, or Oklahoma City?
2: I think, yes, they are playing good enough, better than last year, um, better than at any point um, in LeBron's first time with the Cavs. Uh, I don't know if they're as good as those Miami teams, but they're pretty darn good. and I, I, I can't wait to see the matchups because Golden State, if everybody's healthy, we all know what they could do. Oklahoma City is playing better than they had at any point in the season. Um, I. I could see Cleveland winning but I think it's going to be a long series no matter who they play I really think we're in for a six or a seven game classic I think Cleveland's playing that well and yeah I think just based on last year up 2-1 without two of your starters against a healthy Golden State team that won the championship I, I think I'd be foolish to, to not think Cleveland could win this
1: yeah I agree they can I, I'm not going to pick it if it's Golden State if it's Oklahoma City I think I would I want to see um, but, how the
2: West finishes. I know uh, yeah, am, I, that's am I allowed true to do that on the hot seat? I want, to, yeah. I want to cool off the hot seat for a few more days. It's
1: not that hot anyway. And,
2: and, see, uh, and, and see how the West finishes, because then I'll have a better barometer. And Cleveland's going to go in the, uh, in the freezer again, because you know, if, if they sweep here, we're looking at nine days off before the yeah. NBA Finals. So you've got to take that into account, too. And if it's Golden State, they've got to go to Oakland to play Game 1. If it's OKC, they get to stay home. So there's so many factors be decided but uh I give them a real good chance if they stay uh healthy and have no uh no bumps in the health road between uh, now and the start of the finals
1: yeah and no matter where it is that's going to be an amazing atmosphere for yeah. the NBA finals those are those are three of the very best arenas in the league Can you imagine uh,
2: Cleveland on the verge of a championship what oh that would be God. like for those fans That'd I remember the Red Sox fans back in 2003 you know? I mean we saw
1: it last year um, I mean it, it was more of a hope last year because of all the injuries once Kyrie went down in the finals right. but I remember uh, various reporters saying and I'm sure you can verify this that um, while Oakland has a more sustained noise level and, and is still the undisputed champion of arenas in the NBA the peak noise levels when Cleveland is at its loudest is every bit as loud as Oracle or louder
2: yes yeah, no, there were two of the there are two of the loudest arenas in the league and that's pretty remarkable for you know for Cleveland with not really a newer arena, but they definitely have catered to, to some of the wealthier in the lower levels, and that tends to, I think, knock down your, your decibels a little bit. And that's why when the Warriors move into the new place in San Francisco, they're going to lose a little bit because um, that's always been a raucous place. Even when the Warriors were terrible, that was a great, loud building and still is old building and Oakland to be in. So um, I'm just glad I'll have headset, headsets on. Either way. I'm going to go deaf either way, but I won't have to hear the uh, tin of the crowd.
1: Well, now you get to go deaf by John Barry, so that's one way to that's go. That's
2: right, yes, and I think he takes pleasure <laughs> in that.
1: Yes, probably tons. Uh, Mark Kestesher from Toronto. We're going international on the Hoffman Show. Kesty, I always appreciate it. Have a great call uh, these next couple of games.
2: I'd like to think this spot was about 8 to 9% better than usual based on the uh, exchange rate. So yes. I, I, I hope
1: that's accurate. I, I don't do math, so I don't know. <laughs> Thanks, man. Good to be out with you. Craig Hoffman. Hard left turn now from the NBA playoffs to what's going on down in Waco, Texas. Baylor University has a problem, to say the least. Uh, They've had a problem, and it's come to light, and we're starting to understand just how deep that problem is with sexual assault and domestic violence, specifically involving many members, double-digit members, of their football program going all the way back to 2009 and possibly even before. But the focus of the allegations and what's been uncovered by outside of the lines from ESPN and the Waco Tribune and others who have covered this story goes back to 2009. Um, I'm going to talk about it on my own in a few minutes. But first, uh, the perspective of the person I know who loves that university the most, he's a former co-worker, uh, is Matt Mosley uh, from ESPN Dallas, ESPN Radio in Dallas, Dallas Morning News as well. And as Matt will talk about, he's covered uh, the biggest scandal in Baylor history to this point, uh, the murder of Patrick Dennehy, uh back a couple of years. At this point, it was like 10 years ago, maybe even more. And this is a university and an athletic program that has been through... Uh, that you could argue that's the most horrifying, I mean, if not, it's tied for first, a a player shot another player and the coach tried to cover it up, The most horrifying scandal in collegiate sports history. And this one is right up there. And so I'm going to talk about it, we're going to talk to Matt about it. And it's heavy and it's deep, but it's important. So that's why we're going to cover it. So without further ado, here's my chat with Matt. Very broadly to start, uh, what do you make of this story with the sexual assault and the domestic violence, and um, you know multiple players in trouble, and, and various people at various levels of this of the university apparently aware of it and doing nothing about it? Both as an alum who is a very very proud alum of that university, and as a journalist.
0: Yeah, it is uh, it is an incredibly unfortunate thing, um, and. You no, know, I, I do have Craig, and I really appreciate you having me on your podcast. I do, uh, I do have some experience covering a scandal at Baylor, and in, in fact, uh, I was a young writer at the Morning News when a player showed up missing there in 2003, and you'll recall, uh, you mean, know, one player was murdered by one of his teammates, and so that was one of the, actually one of the biggest, probably. Uh, uh, basketball scandals we've seen in the country in the sense that it turned out and to be a Dave Bliss was involved in trying to pin some things on the on the uh, on on uh, you know, Patrick Denehy, who was the, the player murdered. So, you know, I've had to kind of cover some of these awful stories. This one's, uh, you know, uh, different in a lot of ways. It's a, it's a different kind of scandal. You know, that seemed to be one person covering some things up, and then just an awful... Situation with a murder, something uh, you don't—you just don't uh, almost ever see on a college campus. This is uh, this is—you know—I'm a huge fan of Baylor because I grew up that way. I'm a fourth generation; my great grandparents went there. My dad played football there, so I mean, I came by it naturally. Um, but I, you know, I kind of hate you, you're talking about—you know—this sort of broad uh, perception that people have that. They sort of paint all of us, but people as oh, there's are those people that are covering this thing up. I mean, there are a lot of us alums that have just been horrified by what happens. Certainly, for, first and foremost, with the uh, with the with the rapes and the uh, and the just the the poor response to it and a, and a lack of transparency. And so now, you know, the uncomfortable nature of what you're talking about is that. Uh, well, I've, I've developed long-time uh, relationships and friendships with uh, with Art Biles and Ian McCall, the uh, AD, and now you know they could end up losing their jobs over this. And and I I'm really queasy on uh, whether or not they should lose their jobs um, because uh, you know sometimes even if you didn't know some kid you were bringing in, listen, your you're, part of your job is to you know create a safe environment, and so. What has happened in our response is, uh, um, you know, I'm very embarrassed about it, and I'm just, I'm just horrified that all this has happened. And so it's, uh, I'm, you know, there's a lot of different emotions that go into this.
1: You mentioned, you know, you know Art Bryles decently well, and Ian McCaw decently well, and you know, depending on which reports you look at, a lot of these reports say that at the very least one, if not both, of those guys knew some of this stuff. Uh, was going on and made either a, a out of neglect hit it or flat out tried to suppress this from going public. When you see that, I mean, you know these guys, but what what's your reaction?
0: Yeah, my reaction is that uh, that way those are incredible, uh, incredibly different personalities. Ian McCall is sort of your. CEO, he's not going to be down there probably knowing the day-to-day of what's going on and exactly, you know, some of the behavioral uh, issues of these players are is your old school, high school, uh, former high school, great coach. And, you know, I, it, it's, it's one of those things that, uh, uh, I, I just think, I think Briles probably, and, and you can tell by his reaction, I, part of this is genuine on his part. I don't think he really knows, you know, I think people want to hear from him all this like outpouring of emotion and oh my gosh, we have screwed up. How do we do this? and kind of thing. And like the only way he knows how to react in these things is to sort of go, look what we've done. Look what we've built. Look at all these kids graduating and, and unfortunately, that sort of response you see sometimes with administrators is, why, why are you ignoring all the good things we've done? And you're just looking at this bad stuff. Well, you, you just want to say to them, the bad stuff, we're talking about uh, not only rape allegations, but guys convicted of rape, you know, on your watch. And, and it's, so it's, it's, you know, it's horrible stuff. And yet they can't, they can't sort of rise to the level of what people want in transparency uh, because they're so focused on doing their job, one, and two, keeping their job. And so I I, I would say this, Craig, the one thing you haven't mentioned, I, I would almost say right now that the response of the president, Ken Starr, especially given his past as a man who uh, came dang near close to taking down a sitting president, I, I would think he is in more peril than either the AD or the head coach, and that uh, he might be first to go in all of this because, you know, he, his response has been so tepid to something you know so awful.
1: And right, the, the, you know, for those that don't know, Baylor, a Baptist school, sells itself on this wholesome college experience, and so for him, you know, he's his job is obviously far beyond protecting just the football program. Is that why you say that?
0: Well, yeah, I, I think it goes a lot deeper. I think I think he has become a, a huge outspoken leader, and I think um, much like you saw with all the awful stuff that happened at Penn State, I mean, those those top-level administrators are first to go. Now, you know, we might all have all three of them go. Now, I, 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 I'm a little bit like when you said the part about, um, and I get it where this comes from, you know, I, I sometimes think, because we are a Christian university wait. this even, it even sort of sensationalizes the story a little bit. How could the place where it's supposed to be wholesome? And I would just say this, I mean, I, I do think, and I went to Baylor and, and, uh, uh, I think it's a great part about school, you know, how much, you know, faith is evident there and that kind of thing. But, you know, I, this sort of thought that we have, I know you're not doing this, but the, the thought we have that because the place is a Christian school, Awful things can't happen. Well, I mean, sadly, uh, there's going to be bad stuff that happened at Christian schools, just like state schools. And to your point, though, I I do think sometimes private schools sort of have uh, an inherent built-in. They have the ability to shield things more than, say, a public school, like the Open Records Acts, maybe don't apply as much to them. And so there might be more of like a veil of secrecy, and I think you're seeing that. I don't know how much Baylor's involved with what the Waco PD did, but in these latest reports from outside the lines, you have police taking what would be believed to be sort of extraordinary measures to keep things out of the public eye, and that is locking police reports or locking things in offices, keeping... Reports open for four years for no apparent reason of sexual assault that most of them all said was uh, even the victim ended up saying, I I made this up to get back at him. That's still open. And one of the reasons they, when you open a case like that, it doesn't allow anybody to get into it. So I do think there's some sort of correlation to a private school, uh, you know, have trying to keep things quiet, I get that I, what I don't get is that because we're a Christian school this kind of thing's not supposed to happen, I, I, unfortunately if you put 15,000 kids together in, in the ages of 18 to 22 on a campus, as you know, you're gonna you're gonna have some unfortunate things happen
1: yeah, absolutely, there's no difference it's just, you know, the brand of it what you're selling is, is a school president, you obviously want to you know, you want to protect. And the alums obviously have a high regard for what they expect to go on there. Um, sure. What, what in the end, when you look at, you know, the three guys that we've talked about, Ken Starr, the president, Ian McCaw, the AD, Art Bryles, the head coach, when you look at, you know, read these reports from outside the line and elsewhere, when you take in all the evidence, what do you think should happen?
0: Well... First of all, and I hope this is already, from what I've heard, this is happening. You've got to revamp everything. I mean, I, I would love, uh, I think they've had to completely redo their Title IX compliance. Um, and, and, more correct, we could go all different directions with this. One thing, and I think you would agree with me on this, is these colleges that, that are somehow uh, through this Title IX, um, you know, they're they're asked to conduct their own rape investigations are, are so ill-equipped to do something like that. That's what I, you know, and, and I, that bothers me that, and I mean, I, I almost kind of, there, there was a, there was a, and I can't, I, don't, I can't believe they haven't fired her yet. I think she's still at, Bale, but the Dean of Student Life or something like that, you know, some title like that, who's, who might be equipped to kick some you know, fraternities off campus or, or do some of those things is suddenly cast in a situation where, okay, you're leading a, a rape investigation and there's never been is training. I mean, there's, well, what training is there other than, okay, these are the questions you asked. Here's the kit. You know, you, you have a, you know access to this. It's, 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 that's, that part just is amazing to me. But as far as what happens to, to them, I, I, my gut tells me that Regents, and I think the Regents are meeting right now, and that maybe one person pays with their job. It might be uh, Ian McCall, the athletic director, and the other two get to keep their job. They're going to they're gonna come up, and I'm not saying this is right at all, but, but they, because of what Art Briles has accomplished at Baylor and what it's done, uh, for the, they're, they're right now they're trying to balance this horrible negative story against all the incredible good that he's done. And they're trying to determine how much he could have done to prevent the awful part of this story. And my sense right now is that he keeps his job. Um, but one of those other two probably does get fired.
1: Do you... That- that sits wrong with me personally when I, when I've read what I've read and you know, it's, it's not just the stuff that's happened on that campus, but it's, you know, you've got that stuff going on and he's at least some level aware of it. And then he's bringing in players with histories of sexual or domestic violence from the outside. Like if you've got a problem, you've got to do something to fix it as a coach. And part of that would be not bringing in personnel who's already done the bad things you're trying to rid your program of to, so how do you, how do you, no, with those you.
0: Things? I don't know how, you know, that the Boise state one with the watch crew, I, there's still, we, Craig, we don't know. It's kind of a back and forth. We, we do know that any sort of a sexual assault that happened before that doesn't seem like anybody in Waco had any knowledge of it. Now, did he have some sort of violent past that had been passed along to Baylor? Maybe, but again, that one's kind of up in the air. I mean, quite honestly, all we know about the the Oakman, Sean uh, Oakman, who's now been uh, uh, accused of rape, uh, is, and, and, of course, he had already finished Baylor and was going through the draft process, and it comes back to campus, and that happens within the past, I don't know, two or three months. Um, from the public record, it, it seems... Like uh, he did a rather small thing at Penn State. Like he got in a fight with somebody because he tried to steal a sandwich at the. So what I'm saying is, I do think there's certain levels of. We don't know exactly what Biles knew, and I, I think we're taking a pretty big leap to go. Oh, he knew they were going to come on campus and 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 rape two different you know rape uh, uh, to some some coeds. I I think we're taking a pretty big leap to that, but. To your point, I do believe, and Charlie Strong at Texas has had more of a policy, hey, we don't take anybody else's problems. and I think Baylor's going to have to completely, and I've even expressed this in both uh, in writing and in reaching out to some of those people down there, uh, they've got to revamp that whole process. I mean, you've got to vet these people. You you might just have to go from a zero tolerance. If somebody gets kicked out of another program, you know, given what our program has put people through and been through itself. You just have to come up with a new rule that basically says, if you've been kicked out of another program, we, we can't take you. Like, it's just forbidden. It's a zero-tolerance
1: thing. Yeah, ignorance is, is no longer a good enough answer and really never should have been. Uh, you can read Matt Mosley's work in the Dallas Morning News, amongst other places. Just follow him on Twitter. The links are there, at Matt Mosley. Listen to him on ESPN Radio down in Dallas. Uh, Kalashaw and Mosley in the afternoons. Thank you, Matt, uh, and I'll talk to you soon.
0: Thanks, buddy, and uh, and uh, tweet this out, and I'll I'll give it a retweet to my uh, my vast audience.
1: I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> okay, all right, buddy, take it easy, Craig Hoffman.
1: I want to follow up immediately on the heels of that with something that Matt and I then talked about after we were done recording, and it leads to my larger point of systematic failure and understanding how it comes to be and how it happens. Matt was talking, and he was talking exactly in this context, so I'm not trying to say that he's a part of the problem here. Um, He was merely pointing it out, but I want to echo what he said, and and it's something that I would have said anyway, but he kind of really put it perfectly. And he said, Art Bryles comes off as this stand-up guy who's just trying to do the right things. And that's exactly how systematic failures happen. And it's exactly, specifically in the case of sexual assault, how so many people get away with it. So many rapists get away with rape, because you never think that they would be capable of committing it. And the stereotypical rape happens in a dark alley, someone's kidnapped, pushed into a dark alley, and raped. The reality is that's not how this happened. Um, And the reality is it happens often, like it happened to Baylor student Stephanie Munhenk. And I'm hoping I'm saying Stephanie's last name right. Stephanie Munhenk. And she's written about this on her site, which I'll link at the bottom of this blog post where the podcast is here at hoffmanshow.com. And you read her story and it makes you physically sick. It makes you angry. It makes you want... I I wanted to cry reading it. Because Stephanie Munhank went over to a friend's apartment on her own, voluntarily, to study. A friend that she'd have for a while. A very close friend. And he tried to make sexual advances. She said no. And he didn't accept no. And he raped her twice. And that's how this happens. And so if you scale back to someone like Art Briles, who didn't commit rape, but has seemingly allowed it to happen within his football program through negligence, it's not that Art Briles is hearing about these cases and going, eh, whatever, let's make sure this doesn't get out, or even evilly, uh, sinisterly going, Let's sweep this under the rug. It just—it's negligence. It's ignorance. It's—I'm not gonna like. It's not my job, basically. Not doing anything about it. And to a point, you don't want your football coach being the one to make the decision on guilty and innocent. And so you look at Art Bryles and go, "Well, the guy hasn't been charged. Um, what do you want me to do about it?" You hear about something that happens to one of your players and you go, I'm going to let the police handle it. Well, at some point when you're getting up to two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, or into double digit players, clearly you've got to do something. You've got to demand better from your administration. You've got to start suspending players. You've got to start kicking players off your team. You don't want to, as a coach or anybody, punish someone who's falsely accused and it's not Art Briles' job or Ian McCaw, the athletic director's job to investigate. Ken Starr, as the president of the university, has a right to investigate and all decisions in the end are his in finality, according to Title Nine. But just letting these allegations go by and not doing anything when there's a preponderance of evidence that you're presented with is a problem, a major problem. That's such an understatement to say it's a problem. And that's why I think in the end, Art Bryles is going to have to go because this is systematic. This is people looking at Art Bryles and going, He's done a lot of good stuff, not just in winning games, but done a lot of positive things for this program. And surely many young men have gone through it and, and been great young men and, and been example, model students and human beings and exemplary go on to be fathers and family men as they graduate. But we're talking about a fairly significant sample size of people at this point who have not been. And whether you're doing a bad job of vetting them, bringing them in, or a poor job of ensuring that they understand what is right and wrong, this is a systematic failure of the Baylor football program. And obviously it needs to change, and what the Board of Regents is deciding is whether Art Bryles is capable of changing it. But also what they've got to decide is if he should have, on his own volition changed it already to have the self-awareness and to me that's where you lose me if you're our Bryles, how could you not have the self-awareness to step up and and be a leader you know your football coach needs to be a leader that's a huge part of what you're hiring for him for is to be a leader in your community a leader in your university and a leader of a 100 young men and if you don't have the self-awareness and the awareness of right and wrong to step up and do something before your your number of players accused of rape, in some cases charged, in some players cases convicted, is in the double digits. Are you kidding me? Like this is so obvious. Like what I'm saying is so obvious, and, and in some level of understatement. I don't feel like I'm not I'm not doing this justice enough to say how grotesque and disgusting this is. Like, I just I don't understand how this happens. And that's why Art Braille's in my like I he's done in my eyes. I know Mosley's talked about it, you know, said he thinks Ken Starr could be the one to go, and I think Starr probably will go, and based off reading Stephanie Munhanks' account of her rape, should go. It's just it's you read her account and you're going, This girl is saying she's raped, and we're doubting her at every turn. We're not helping her, we're not We're not like this is a victim of rape and you're pushing her away. Imagine if that's your sister, daughter, best friend, whatever. Think of the anger you'd have inside of you for the horror that she's going through. And anybody who enabled that to happen, you're going to want to be held responsible from the person who committed the act to those who enabled him afterwards. And that's where we're at with Art Bryles, Ian McCaw, and Ken Starr at Baylor. But it goes, in this case, even beyond that. The systematic you know, finding of their own innocence at Baylor seems inevitable. They hire this law firm from Philadelphia who's got a history of siding with universities in cases like this. I want someone who's gonna to try to find that I've screwed up. Like if you want if you need someone who's gonna be after the truth and that's gonna dig hard. But that's the thing. When you're hiring a law firm to do this, like you're the ones paying them. Aren't you kinda of paying them not to make you look awful? That seems like that's what Baylor is trying to do in hiring this particular law firm. Then the people that Baylor brings in in these Title IX cases. In Stephanie Munhank's story, she talks about a judge who adjudicated her case and didn't seem to understand what consent is. And let me be perfectly clear. Two people get to decide consent. The two people involved in a sexual act and they get to decide for themselves. Person A gets to decide consent for person A, person B gets to decide consent for person B, and if A doesn't decide yes for A and B doesn't decide yes for B, then if something takes place, it is rape. It's that simple. Yet you've got this judge who is insinuating based on context clues that Stephanie Munhink is lying after the fact that she did consent in some way that she consented to these acts by wearing certain clothing or in things that she said allegedly according to the rapist who is lying about it. You have a judge who doesn't understand what consent is and that should A, piss you off and B, terrify you. And these are the people that Baylor has brought in making this systematic failure even worse. Just keeping it going, perpetuating a systematic failure. And the result is, you have women at this university who think that either people won't believe them or will believe them and will just do nothing about it. Hey, I'm sorry that happened to you. What do you mean you're sorry? That's it? I'm sorry that you got raped. How cold. How unhuman can you be? And this is the response at this university. If they decide that the people that are in place now can fix this, then there better be real change. And it better be palpable and we better see it. And the people who should get to judge whether it's satisfactory or not are the people that have gone through it who understand what need to be changed. The experts in this both professionally and the experts who never wanted to be experts at all the victims and if they decide that art briles and if the regents the board of regents decides that art briles and ian mccaw and ken Starr are capable of fixing this they better have some damn good reason to explain themselves of why because when failure is systematic often it is born out of ignorance And the chances that people are going to somehow become not ignorant, I don't have them as too high. Especially when it's not going to be their first priority. Because Art Bryles has a football team to coach. That's his priority. He's made that rather clear. It's hard for the Baylor community because all you want is your sports teams to be relevant And Art Bryles has taken one of the worst programs in the country to national prominence. To throw that away isn't easy. But if it's found, as more evidence comes out, that it seems like Art Bryles knew about some of this stuff, and more evidence comes out that he indeed did, it should be pretty easy to throw that away. Because that can't be acceptable, ever. There's no price of winning that is worth that in your community, on your campus, from the people that you're supposed to be proud of and the players for producing the results. No amount of winning is worth this. So that's what I think about this Baylor situation and we should find out very shortly what the Board of Regents thinks. And all we can really hope is that the Board of Regents isn't a part of this system that is so miserably failing.
0: Craig Hoffman.
1: Amanda Borges covers the Jacksonville Jaguars for 1010XL down in Jacksonville. It's their flagship radio station, I do believe. And uh, Amanda, this is not the first time we've heard first round pick of the Jacksonville, Jacksonville Jaguars hurt in preseason activities or offseason activities uh, as Jalen Ramsey has a meniscus tear. Um, when you hear it for the second year in a row after Dante Fowler last year, your first thought is?
3: Oh, my goodness. I feel for the fans because I get it. I mean, my first week on the job last year was rookie minicamp, and it was like my third or fourth day, and I'm out at rookie minicamp watching them do 11-on-11 11 11 drills, and all of a sudden Dante Fowler Jr. goes down, and right away you knew it was, it was bad. So, the difference between Jalen Ramsey and Dante Fowler is nobody saw it happen, and it took a little while for it to come out, Um, but you're right, it's just the fact that it's another first round draft pick, Um, someone that every single fan wanted before the Jags even selected him, so it hits hard, um, and fans are concerned, but luckily, there is a, uh, a positive side to this, because, you know, Dante Fowler had a torn ACL He was out for the season. So with the torn meniscus for Jalen, it doesn't seem to be season-ending, and I can't say with confidence that it's not, because I obviously don't know for sure. But what I'm hearing is that um, it's more of an off-season thing to deal with, and then he'll be back and ready to rock and roll come September.
1: Yeah, the meniscus is obviously less serious. Easy to say. It's not my knee. But the thought is that this is there's no long-term concern, there's no lingering effect, or is this something that, while it's not season-ending, there's concerns that there could be a repeat? Like, what's kind of the, the word coming out of the facility from a medical standpoint?
3: So here's what I can tell you from a medical standpoint. I have heard that it's one of those things where every injury is different. So it's easy to look at one player, whether he's a professional athlete or not, and say, hey, you tore your your meniscus. You'll be out for two weeks, whether you play basketball for fun, um, you play tennis, or you're a professional football player. Then there are others that are four to six weeks. Then those where you have surgery to fix it, there are complications, you're on crutches, and then you're out for four to six months. So every single injury is different. But what I've heard with this is he's obviously getting a second opinion. And I, a lot of fans have been freaking out about that. Why is he getting a second opinion? You know, he saw the team position. Shouldn't he know enough to be able to then tell what he needs to do and how to rehab it? Well, it's protocol. Um, agents and players alike want to get a second opinion as a precaution. Um, and team doctors talk to other surgeons. Um, So, I know that the team physician has already spoken with Dr. Andrews, who is the guy that Ramsey is going to go second opinion from. They've spoken, so Dr. Andrews knows what to look for when he sees Ramsey. Um, The timetable right now is next week is when they'll know specifically where to go from here. Do we need to do surgery? How long is it going to take? How long will he be out for? Who is going to perform the surgery? Um, all of that will be decided next week. So things are still up in the air. Um, obviously, the most important question is, how long is he going to be out for and when can he come
1: Yeah, I know with the meniscus, uh, just from, you know, this is a fairly common injury throughout athletics, that one of the surgical options is to just remove it. And that has some long term effects, but it helps players get back on the field faster. I would imagine, just real quickly, that's not going to be what they're going to do with him since he's so young and really just—I mean, yeah. not, he's really just starting his career. He literally is just starting his career.
3: Right. I don't know for sure, but that's not the impression that I'm getting at all. I'm um, just trying to gauge—you know—is this a minor tear? Is it a serious tear? Um, so, it's interesting because the Ducks have been very transparent, um, even with Dante Fowler when he went down, they have been really good about um, telling us, you know, as much information as we need to know. Um, but the overall feeling I'm getting from um, the Jaguars organization is this isn't that bad, which is good for the fans, but obviously the fans go straight to, oh my gosh, second-first-round draft pick that goes down. But I don't think um, the surgery, if they're going to do a procedure, I don't see them taking it out. But hey, I'm not a doctor, yeah. so what do I know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but for sure. I can tell you, everyone's very glad it's the meniscus and not an ACL or an NCL. Um, as you probably know, the meniscus is cartilage, so right. it's not like the ACL or NCL that like actually connects the bone. So it's sort of like a cushion. Um, but... Honestly, the truth is, every single player is one play away from an injury. You know, it just it just happens. So I think everyone right now is just thankful that you know this isn't worse than it is.
1: Yeah. What uh, you say? The fans obviously nervous, upset. Um, you know, probably feel somewhat cursed. What about the players and the coaches and the staff in that facility? Um, I assume that there's some obviously fear, but like. This is a team that made a lot of moves in free agency, nailed the draft in the eyes of a lot of people, and I would assume entered these offseason workouts with an extreme amount of optimism. Has that been tempered at all uh, due to this feeling of maybe being cursed, or is it just like, you know what, this happens, we're going to be fine, Jalen's going to be fine, and we still expect to be able to compete at a very high level this year?
3: Well, the whole idea of the curse is kind of just something that's been made up by the fans. And then I think we as media members kind of take it and run with it and say, oh my gosh, are they right? (laughs) But I can tell you that the players in person do not feel that way. And especially players individually, they always are focused on their own game. So, of course, they're upset when a a teammate goes down, but that doesn't affect how they personally train and perform and stay motivated. Um, There has been a lot of national attention on the team in the offseason, and it's for good reason. They had a bunch of fantastic free agent signings and then look what they did in the draft. But something else to remember is rookies don't always make an impact right away, especially with the NFL. And so I think with the team right now, um, they're focused on really honing in on how to get better and to live up to those expectations. But all the players are focused individually. And like I said, nobody wants to see their teammate go down. Um, but especially because it's not a season ending injury, um, nobody is freaking out on the team just yet. So the only people that are freaking out are the fans. And I'm hoping they kind of sit her down and realize, hey, it's going to be okay. It's going
1: to be yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, fans overreacting. That never happens anywhere. Um, no, right, well,
3: absolutely not.
1: <laughs> last thing real quick. Um, when you know the staff down there, whether it be Gus Bradley or, or his defensive coaches – talked about, if they have talked at all really about this or what you've been able to, to kind of gather behind the scenes of how big of a loss this is for for Ramsey, the player as a rookie coming in and the role he was expected to play. Um, how much in terms of a learning experience do they feel missing offseason time is for him?
3: I mean, I can say that it sucks, obviously. You never want a rookie to go down, especially your number five. Draft pick. Um, But it happens. It's something that you kind of just learn to deal with. The thing that I hate for Jalen is that he was never hurt in college. So it's like, you know, you go through all of college, and you're not hurt, and you play fantastically, and then you get to the league, and before the season even starts, something like this happens. So I hate it for him Um, I've interacted with him a few times, and when I did, he's one of those guys where this is not going to get him down. Um, And the coaches over at Everbank are the same. They're not going to say that just because he's hurt, everything is ruined. Um, Dave Caldwell, during right after the draft, he said, listen, we're excited about all these guys, but remember, rookies don't define your success. You know, there are a lot of other guys on this team, not only the free agent signings, but other defensive players that they relied on last year that they expect to make a big impact this year as well. So I think from a fan perception, it's a big deal because everyone was really hyped and excited for Jalen to come. But when you go into the facility, nobody's saying, oh my gosh, we're screwed now, Um, especially because this isn't season ending. But You've got Prince of Nukamara. Aaron Coleman is out for the first four games because of a PED suspension, but when he comes back, they expect him to play. They like what they've seen from Nick Marshall. So they've got options at cornerback. Um, but, <laughs> that they want to see Jalen out there. I can tell you, they definitely want to see him out there. So we'll have to see what happens.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And it's up to him as a player to realize that his knee doesn't affect his brain and that the classroom right. work that you're expected to do in the offseason doesn't stop. Uh, Because you go from practicing to rehab and he seems like a smart enough guy to be able to figure that out. And if not, I'm sure the coaches and the veterans will let him know. Uh, Again, you can follow Amanda. What's your, your Twitter handle again?
3: My Twitter is Amanda1010XL.
1: Okay, that's what I thought, but I didn't want to screw it up. So you can follow her there, (laughs) at Amanda1010XL. Uh, Listen to her on 1010XL down in Jacksonville. Appreciate this. This was fun. uh, And unfortunately, uh, we'll have to do this again at some point when the topic matter is not as morbid.
3: Yes, please call me after the Jaguars make it to the playoffs, and then we can talk about something fun. Excellent. Thanks, Amanda. (laughs)
1: Thank you. Call it a wrap. Call it a wrap today with a quick follow-up on something I wrote about rather extensively yesterday. That is a New Washington Post poll that says 9 out of 10 Native Americans are not offended by the Washington Redskins team nickname. What's interesting to me, statistically speaking, is the 1 of 10. Now, first, a note on statistics and that number. That the 9 out of 10. That was a, a poll of 500 something people. I think it was 540 people who self-identify as Native Americans. Some of them tribal members. Some of the, these people that the Washington Post interviewed were indeed people that live a Native American lifestyle. or very well versed in the history. And some of them said the name is not offensive. However, it was interesting also to see some of the response to that poll. Uh... There were hashtags on Twitter of Native Americans who said, "I I am Native. I am not. I was not asked." Obviously, if they're making that known, then you know which side of the issue that they're on. They would have upped the percentage of people who were offended. But one in particular caught my eye. Uh, it's a guy that I know a little bit, have interviewed multiple times. He is a tremendous writer for ESPN Los Angeles. It's Baxter Holmes. Baxter, when he was a child, his parents are of Native American heritage, and he moved uh, back to Oklahoma, and they lived even for while his, his dad was building, literally, the log cabin they would live in, lived in a teepee. Um, he wrote about this for Esquire, and, and the link is on his Twitter feed, at Baxter Holmes, and I'll put it on the bottom of this site as well, uh, here on com, But... Baxter went into the history of the term redskin and it's more than just a slur. Um, And and that's kind of a little bit what I wrote about yesterday of how, look, it's hard to get past the dictionary definition of this being a slur of, you know, and how severe of a slur it is, whether it's on par with, um, you know, the most common homophobic slur, the most common racial slur for African-Americans or, um, some of the, the Jewish slurs that you'll hear um, that that are just everyone agrees are completely offensive and unacceptable. Um, this one seems to garner a little bit more disagreement, but also understand that Native Americans are about as unrepresented and underrepresented as any group in this co- any ethnic group in this country um, and also that their history Uh, is as significant to this country because let's be frank white people came in and ran them out of land that was theirs because that's what white people did in you know the 1600s and earlier and after a white person showed up a european specifically showed up and said this is my land It's the cause of a lot of problems today. Look at the Middle East. Look at some of the stuff in Africa uh, that goes on between tribes that have been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And Europe came in and drew lines that divided people in ways that were unnatural. And now all of a sudden you've got civil war. So this is a super complex issue. But what Baxter outlines in this piece is that this term, Redskins, which I use only To describe a football team, and as I wrote yesterday, I'll call the team what their nickname is, and I use it in reference to a football team only, or in this case, if you want to say I'm not talking about the football team, it's for educational purposes, in quoting Baxter's piece, um, that a redskin, in the context that Baxter said, is beyond a slur, and that it was the literal head of a Native American person that had been scalped. Um, and they were worth money. And when you add that context, it's even harder to defend the name. And that's why, as I wrote yesterday, I'm not going to lead the charge because uh, I, and again, I don't want to reiterate, just go back and read everything that, or say everything that I wrote yesterday. But I think Baxter's point is worth talking about and, and reiterating some of this is worth it. Um, this is a nuanced, complex issue. And obviously, the Washington Post poll, while not scientifically satisfactory, was a significant number of a wide variance of people. 540 is not insignificant, although scientifically speaking, is not a representative sample size. Uh, and they did a good job of varying the the people that they talked to. They got people from all 50 states and the District of Columbia. Some are tribal members, some not as as Native American, to put it that way, um, in terms of not full-blooded, have not been immersed in the lifestyle um, and the culture since birth or since childhood. So while I look at some of the findings and and some of the other studies that have said there's a large number, even perhaps a majority in the Washington Post poll's case, that do not find this term offensive, Um, And for that reason, I'm not going to go stand on a soapbox and say, change the name, change the name, change the name. It's up to me. I would change the name. Because you look at some of the people who are shouting the loudest and they're the ones most affected. You've got people like Baxter who grew up on a reservation. And you have leaders in Native American communities stepping up and saying, this is not right. We are not honored by this. This is offensive to me and my people. And to ignore those voices is ignorant beyond belief. Now, you can hear them and still decide to make a different decision. And clearly that is what Daniel Snyder and the Redskins organization and the NFL has done. And they will cite the 90% in this Washington Post poll that say it's not offensive and basically tell the other 10% to get over it. But... To pretend it's people who are just overly politically correct and trying to be offended by everything is, again, beyond ignorant. And so I think it's important that we listen to these people and this dialogue continues. And I think eventually this will change somewhere down the road. It might not be for a long, long time. But uh, I think this poll was really interesting for a lot of ways. And so if you missed yesterday's blog... Check it out, the blog, hoffmanshow.com. It's, if you're on the blog right now, you probably are. Um, unless you're listening on iTunes, then uh, it's right below this post. Uh, again, you can subscribe on iTunes. Go to hoffmanshow.com and click over on the right side of the blog page. There's a nice easy button. It'll take you to the podcast page on iTunes. Uh, and you can subscribe on SoundCloud if you so choose. Uh, subscribe subscribe to the RSS feed of this blog. Uh, but whatever you do, or if you just click on links on Twitter every day, Thank you so much, as always, for checking it out. Thanks to Mark Kestescher for joining me, Matt Mosley for joining me, Amanda Borges, who is terrific, uh, from down in Jacksonville for joining me. I am Craig Hoffman. Thank you for
0: listening. Have a great weekend. Goodbye. (laughs)